From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. It is great to see you all. I just muted everybody to get a nice, clean background. This is lesson number six of Beyond Right, and we've saved the best for last. In the language of our sages, Acharon, Acharon Chaviv, the last is always the best. We've saved the best for last. Before we get started, a special thank you to our core sponsors, Howard Feinstein, Steve Horowitz, Joy Maxey, Mira Robbins, may be blessed with God Almighty's eternal and abundant goodness uh, from now and to eternity. And now, on today's class. So, you know, some people are so judgmental. In life, some people are so judgmental, and you know what? I can tell by just looking at them. That was a, that was a quick one. It was a quick in and out. All right, quick in and out. Jules, welcome. Um, so today's class is going to talk about human nature. But first, how do we get here? Why are we talking about human nature? And uh, what's the context of all this discussion? You see, this course, this course is all about exploring Jewish values and seeing how those values shape and influence Jewish law. And so over the last five weeks, we've explored some incredible topics, which I will go through very quickly right here at the outset. In lesson number one, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, we looked at the Jewish value of doing what's right by another when there's no skin off our back. In other words, when it doesn't hurt us, you can help out someone and without it costing you a penny. That's a Jewish value. And we saw how that drives uh, and influences Jewish law regarding neighborly conversations. Can I park in your driveway when you're not at home? Can I use your unlimited Wi-Fi when you're not around, when you're at work? Right? We saw how these, the, the values of Judaism shape Jewish law. In lesson number two, we explored the value of teshuva, the value of making amends, of turning one's life around, and we saw how this drives Jewish law to make drastic accommodations for the remorseful thief. We want someone who has lived, uh, who has committed crimes to come clean. And so we make it feasible by kind of accommodating the law to fit that. Uh, in lesson three, we learned about the Jewish value of collective responsibility. We're all on the same boat together. And we saw how that obligates us to proactively protect another person's physical, financial, and spiritual well-being. In lesson four, we studied the Jewish value of personal freedom and protecting human freedoms. And we saw how that directly informs Jewish labor law. You cannot force someone to work against their will, even if they signed the contract. You cannot force servitude. In Lesson 5, last week, we examined the unique Jewish perspective on ownership. That ownership is real and not just a societal construct. And we saw how that naturally shapes Jewish law vis-a-vis theft and the obligation to return lost objects. This course 
in my opinion, has been nothing short of remarkable because we've traced the connection between Jewish philosophy, Jewish theory, Jewish values, and very practical Jewish law. Along the way, we've explored mysticism, philosophy, ontology, and lots of other related topics. Tonight, we close out this series with our final topic, human nature. Much ink has been spilled and many a therapist hours build on the topic of the human condition. And at the center of this topic is a question. What is the core nature of a person? What is the core nature of human beings? Are people inherently good? Are they inherently bad? No comment, <laughs> all of the above. What is the nature of a human being? As we'll see tonight, Judaism has a definitive and radical take on what lies at the center of humanity. And this oh-so-hot take categorically shapes so many areas of Jewish law. We have so much to get to. Let's jump right in. And I want to start with a question. I want to start with a question. Do you think, it's kind of a personal question, but it's like, it's a personal, collective, general, but specific question, one of those. Everyone's safe, don't worry, it's a super safe space. You can choose not to answer whatsoever. But the question that I'd like to pose, even if no one answers, is do you believe, it's a question for you to think about, if not to answer. Do you believe that you possess pers a, a personal bias? Do you believe that you are a biased human being? Do you believe that you have a conscious or unconscious bias? Uh, so let's take a poll. Safe poll. Ah, good. We're going to have two definitions in a moment. Good. Excellent question. Excellent question. But we are, we're going to define bias soon. But first off the bat, do you think that you have a bias? Are you biased? Whoever thinks they are biased, raise your hand. Okay. Oh, look, very, look at that. You guys are all vulnerable. Unbelievable. Look at this. Such a safe space. It's fantastic. Mashiach Zeitin. Everyone's uh, opening up. Uh, no bias. Who thinks they have no zero bias in life? Okay. All right. So most of us think that on some level, somewhere, we have a bias. But the truth is, as Dr. Maxi pointed out, if we want to know if we have or don't have a bias, if it's conscious or, or subconscious, then we need to first define the term. What is bias? What is a bias? By the way, in Hebrew, bias or bayit is a house. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. What is a bias? B-I-A-S. <laughs> All right. So, to get into this topic, we are going to look at two definitions of bias. One from the Oxford Online English Dictionary and one from MiriamWebster.com. Now, I will tell you, what's cool about this is we're literally going to see a machloket, a dispute between two online dictionaries. And we'll see, this is going to be crazy. We're going to... Just leave it up to a bunch of Jews to analyze online dictionaries. And we're going to see how these two definitions speak to really two realities of biases that we all might have, one being not so kosher, the other one being kosher. But I digress. I don't really digress, but let's rewind a little bit. Let's look at these definitions. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Let's jump right in. Uh, if, you, if you have a book handy, you can look it in the book or look it on the screen, whichever or both, whichever you prefer. Text 1A. Um, Prejudicial bias. This is from the Oxford Dictionary, Oxford Online Dictionary. Dr. Maxey, please get us started with text 1A. Prejudice 
in favor of or against one thing, person, or group compared with another, usually in a way considered to be unfair. Okay, so that's the Oxford Online Dictionary's definition of the word bias. And now let's compare and contrast that with text 1B. Dr. Maxey, please continue, if you will. Uh, this is from MiriamWebster.com. An inclination of temperament or outlook, especially a person and sometimes unreasoned, a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. Okay, you know, I, I, I don't know if you guys find this. I find sometimes, I'm going to put it back up in a second. I find sometimes, like, when I read definitions, it turns like it's just the words are like just a word set. It's like just a bunch of words strung together. And it's like, what does that even mean? I'm more confused than. Has that ever happened to you? You read that definition, you're like, I don't even know what that's saying. Like somebody wrote that to make it sound, I don't know, obscure. Okay, here's the deal. When we look at these two definitions of bias, Oxford and MW, we're going to discover a very different approach to the word bias. I'm going to put it back on, up on the screen so that everybody who's looking at the screen can uh, view it together. Um, let me make this a little bit smaller so we can see both at the same time. Okay, we have the Oxford Online Dictionary's definition of prejudice in favor of, or, sorry, in favor of or against one thing, uh, etc., and compare it with another. And then uh, MiriamWebster.com, an inclination, an inclination of temperament or outlook personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. Okay, what do you, you guys, does anyone see a difference between these two? Again, we run the risk of just sounding like word salad, but does anyone see a distinction, I would say a core distinction between one and the other? What do you guys think? What do you, I'm, I'm keeping it up, what do you guys think? Anyone jump in, jump in, jump in. The Oxford definition, you can be in favor or against, and to me, the Merriam-Webster definition doesn't give you the option of a, a favorable bias. Okay, interesting. Okay, good. Okay, good. Hey, somebody, give me, a, give me more. Give me more. I, I see something different. Okay. In that uh, Oxford has a loaded definition. Prejudice in favor of or against one thing. And uh, Webster says an, an, an inclination of temperament. That's much different. Mark, I concur with your thinking, and let me explain. According, again, we're li this is literally going to sound like the Talmud. According to the Oxford definition, yeah, it talks about prejudice, but listen to this. And yes, David, you're right, for or against. But to me, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. In the Oxford definition of the word bias, it says that what is bias? Bias is a prejudice. Thus main prejudice. What does prejudice mean? Prejudice means when you look at one thing one way and something else a different way and you're using two different measures unfairly. Are you with me on this? That's what bias is. Bias is when you hold things to different standards. Bias, according to Oxford, is when you're inconsistent in your definitions. Okay? One second. What about Merriam-Webster? It doesn't talk about inconsistency. In bias, it talks about bias being a lens through which you view something. It's an inclination through which you you, you learn you you view something that could be consistent all the way through. You have I'll give you an example: rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, you ever hear that expression? Rose-tinted glasses. Good. You ready for this? If you put them on sometimes and take them off sometimes, 
then you're being inconsistent. Then you're being prejudiced. For this one, you put on the rose-tinted, and for that one, you take them off. That's, now that's bias according to Oxford. You're, you're prejudicing. You're, 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 um, you're prejudiced against one and for the other. You're putting them on for this one and taking them off for that one. According to the Merriam-Webster, literally never said in that tone before in history, right? but according to Merriam-Webster, um, what is bias? Positivity bias. Excellent, Adina Malka. Love that. Great book. Chabad.org, Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson. Um, by the way, we had Rabbi Kalmanson speak for our online dinner, I don't know, a year or two ago. Anyway, back to, back to our story. According to Merriam-Webster, so the, bias means that you're wearing rose-tinted glasses. That's it. You don't take them off, but you wear them. So you're not looking at things so-called objectively. You have your own way of looking at things, but that would be consistent all the way through. So again, in the first definition, the bias is being applied inconsistently, hence the prejudice. In the second definition, the bias is being applied consistently. The person is wearing rose-tinted glasses, or really, frankly, any type of glasses, any color glasses, and seeing everything in that light. So there is a spin, right? There is a tint, there is a shade, there is a spin, hence the bias, but it's being applied equally. It's not in the context of prejudice. Are you with me on this so far? Okay, now this is, honestly, this is key to the class. So I, I want to give an illustration of the first type of bias, the Oxford's version of bias, I want to give an example of that in action. What does it look like when a person applies um, a judgment subjectively, looking at some things one way and other things a different way, putting on the glasses, the rose-tinted glasses for one but not for the other? What does that look like in action? I'm going to give you a very practical scenario. Okay, It's, it's in your books. Um, it's page 168. There's an exercise. I'm pulling it up over here. Uh, yeah, uh, here's what I want you to look at. Four scenarios. Here's a box with four scenarios. You know, the bo one, bo one column says me, the other one says others. Okay? And there are four scenarios on the left side. And those four scenarios might be experienced with oneself or with others. So here's a question that we're all going to discuss and explore together. How do you see yourself when you are late? When you come home late, what do you think about yourself? versus how do you see others when they come home late? Are you with me on the question? Yeah? When you show up late, let's just pause here for a moment. Let's have a discussion. When you show up late, what do you tell yourself? What do you tell yourself? Well, in both cases, why did you come home late? No, I know that, but I'm saying, but when you, when you show up late, what do you tell yourself? What's your inner narrative? Help me out here. Well, I couldn't help it because I had X, Y, and Z going on. At yeah, I was on time. and then, When someone else comes late. <laughs> Irresponsible. Unbelievable. Unbelie inconsiderate. Unbelievable. How dare they? All right. The next scenario. Next scenario. Do as I say, don't do as I do. Exactly. Let's take a look at the next scenario is uh, bad mood. So what? So when you're in a bad mood versus when others are in a bad mood. So help me out here. How do we view ourselves when we're in a bad mood? What is it? What is it? Not the bad mood itself, but how do we contextualize being in a bad mood? What do we say? You know, why am I in a bad mood? Help me out here. Because I had a bad day. Life is stressful. It's not my fault. Essentially, what about when someone else is in a bad mood? 
They're irritable, cranky, un. What kind of person is in such a bad mood? Crazy. <laughs> it's like. All right, next scenario. I, I hope you understand where bias comes in, prejudicial bias comes in. Okay, this is an example of that. Let's take a look at the third scenario. Missed appointment. I guess missed appointment is the same as coming home. I, to me, it's kind of the same. Missed appointment. So when you miss a, an appointment, what do you tell yourself? You missed the appointment. Traffic, something came up. Yeah, something came up. There's traffic, whatever. I'm sorry. And what happens when someone else misses an appointment? Irresponsible. Irresponsible, disorganized, fat. Final, final uh, example. Final example. Um, left a mess. <laughs> oh, look, there's a word bank at the bottom over here. Look at that. That's cool. We can pick from there if we want. Left a mess. If you leave a mess, what does that mean? If you not, what does it mean? But if you leave a mess, what do you tell yourself? Rude, inconsiderate. No. What do you tell yourself about yourself? If you, if you left. Genius. <laughs> Hold on. Ten points. Who said it's a sign of someone said it's a sign of genius? I love OJ oh, you said <laughs> Love that. Love that. You know it's so it's when I was in New York, my boss would tell me we were in publishing. My boss told me that an empty desk is a sign of an empty mind. <laughs> that was his line. <laughs> an empty desk is a sign of an empty mind. So when we leave a mess, what do you mean? It's genius. It's, it's, you can't stop the process. <laughs> I love that. Or something along the lines of, I'll get to it later. I was busy, got distracted, I'll get back to it. Ah, it's, not so, it's not so bad. When someone else leaves a mess, <laughs> they're a slob. Forget about it. So the point of all this, I, I think these are... You know, inch, funny, interesting, real. You know, at least we could at least we could laugh, right? But scenarios that we see the um, asymmetry, right? We see the distinction between how we look at ourselves and how we look at others, um, right? When it comes to us, or when it comes to someone else, you might have a different formula for assessing. And, and these scenarios are very telling. You see, it's quite natural for us to judge others very differently than the way we judge ourselves. Because we tell ourselves, I'm a good person. It's just, there was too much traffic, I had a bad day, an emergency came up, I'm gonna get to it soon, I'm a budding genius, right? We tell ourselves all these narratives because we know that we're good. It's just these little things are, you know, they all have an excuse. But someone else, oh, no siree, Bob. You're irresponsible, you're difficult, you're disorganized, you're a slob. I don't even want to say these words, but like we, 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 we sometimes, I mean, we shouldn't, but we sometimes look at others with a very different, that very different metric. And, and I, I hate to be blunt, but we, we do this very often. Some might argue we do this all the time. And, you know, when it comes to us, we have all the excuses built in, right? But the other guy, guilty as charged, no excuses. Um, this reflects a, a, a very stark inconsistency uh, in how we view ourselves versus how we view others. You see, we look at ourselves as we're good people with just a few minor flaws that can totally be tweaked at any moment. And, we, and you know what? We're going to get to it really soon. Like, I have just a few things. They're just going to iron out. Not even iron out. Like, steam out. You know, it's like steam. Just like hang it in the shower. It's going to like, don't even have to like apply any pressure. It's going to like, one, two, three, chick chuck. But someone else, 
The other guy, you know, really, they're super flawed. They should really work on getting their act together. You know, maybe some therapy. Like, that's how we think. Like, me, I'm perfect with a few minor, you know, tidbits. The other guy, oh, man, let's start from scratch with that guy. So the question is, where does this personal, cognitive, prejudicial bias come from? Where does it come from? And the answer is, according to Jewish thought, simple. It comes from a simple place. And the place it comes from is self-love. Self-love. We all love ourselves. At least a healthy person has a healthy amount of self-love. And that, health, that self-love is super duper powerful. Self-love covers and colors our ju- covers the flaws and colors our judgment of self. Um, King Solomon, I thought, I think wrote, writes Ava Techasa Peshayim, something along those lines. Love conceals flaws. By the way, we know this also in the beginning of a relationship when you fall in love, there's nothing that the other person could do wrong. You know what I'm talking about? When you originally fall in love, give it a week or two and so I was like oh look at that what changed what changed you weren't like overwhelmed by that sense of love well guess what we're always again it's healthy but we're always overtaken by our own sense of love for self healthy self-love is powerful self-love powerful self-love can see is the ultimate concealer of flaws it's the ultimate coloring of our judgment we can't but look at ourselves with rose-tinted glasses. What other lenses are we going to use? Of course they're rose. We're great. Just a few things. No big deal. Yeah, it's like a tweak here or there. But otherwise, perfection. Perfection uh, personified. But the other person, for the other person, we don't have that same natural self-love. Because we're not their self, right? We're us. They're them. We don't have that natural, inherent, you know, underlying love. So their imperfections are laid before us, stark and bold, without any relief. It's stark, it's bold. We see the flaws. We don't see the love and then a little bit of, you know, something to tweak. We see the flaws and we define them by the flaws. By the way, this explains a truth in life that you you know as well as I do. You might know something that you need to work on, but if somebody else calls you out on it, ooh, you get offended. You get offended, even though you know that they're, you know that it's true. And you, you, you know it more than they know it, but, but when they said it, it's offensive. Why? You know why? Because they said it without the filter of love. They said it without the love filter. Because you know that you have this flaw, but you know that overall you're a good person. Not only a good person, you're a great person. You're wonderful. You're the best. Yeah, you have this little thing. So you know about it, but it's not a big deal. But when the other person sizes you up by the flaw and says, oh, you know who you are? You're a flaw. How dare you? How dare you not look at me like I look at myself? We get offended. Are you with me on this? Is that resonating, that idea? I hope so. So this is a great example of the first type of bias, according to Oxford, right? Oxford Dictionary. It's looking at yourself one way with acceptance and love and looking at the other a different way with harsh judgment. It's applying the bias selectively, where you judge yourself with one lens and you judge the other with a very different lens. That's one type of bias. But here's the big idea. Here's the very big idea. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. If we're already wearing the rose-tinted glasses for ourselves, you know what Judaism says? Keep them on and look at the other one the same way. It's not natural, it's not intuitive, but 
Keep them on. Keep on the glasses. In other words, imagine, imagine. Imagine all the people, right? Imagine if you and I could apply the same intuitively positive judgment that comes from innate self-love. Imagine if we could apply that to the other guy, to the other person. What if you and I could see the other, really any other person, as an essentially beautiful person that just happens to be working on a few things? Imagine if you could look at them the way they see themselves, the way you see yourself. Imagine that. Imagine if you saw the other, not as a flaw, but as a good person, the few things, just like they see themselves, just like you see yourself and your flaws. That would be a game changer. That would be a radical game changer. That would be the second definition of the word bias. Merriam-Webster's definition of the word bias. That would be seeing everything through a certain lens, seeing everything through a unique angle, seeing both yourself and the other through a bias, a positive bias. Adida Malka held up the book before, Positivity Bias. This would be the concept of a positive bias applied equally. In other words, who do you apply that beauty filter to? Which pictures? Only the selfies or also the ones of the other person? Right? We have the filter. We're able to apply it to ourselves. Judaism encourages us to apply it to the other person as well. If we just apply it to ourselves, that's a prejudicial bias. If we apply it to everybody, that's great. So if we think about the word bias, and the word bias typically has a negative connotation. Oh, you're biased. Ooh, that's not good. Turns out, not all biases are bad, or biases. Not all biases are bad. If it's a bias of looking at the best in, one, in, in, in a person, and we know what that feels like because we do it for ourselves, and we can apply that same perspective to others, that's a very good thing. So Judaism exhorts us to be biased when looking at both ourselves and others. You know, the mitzvah to love your fellow as yourself, what do you think that means? Love your fellow like you love yourself. That's exactly what it means. Just like you love yourself unconditionally, and even though you have flaws, whatever, you're working on them, they're fine, they don't get in the way of your self-love, love the other one the same way. Sure, they have flaws, big deal. You love them anyway. That's hard, but it's possible. You love yourself that way, extend to keep the glasses on when you look at the other. Apply the same super general self-love filter to those that are not immediately you. Do it because you're radically biased. Do it because there's a divine expectation to do so, as we see in text 2a. Take a look at this text. I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is coming from the book of Leviticus. And Jay, if you don't mind, Jay, it's great to have you. Please read text 2a. You shall judge your fellow with righteousness. The simple meaning of that is that if you're a judge, like a professional judge, the, the black robe and gavel, um, you should judge with righteousness, which means no, uh, no um, judicial, no judicial bias. If you have two litigants or two um, you know, claimants before you, no bias, no prejudice, just judge them equally. However, Sounds like that's coming from the, the book of uh, Micah. Yeah, also. Yeah, I mean, well, it's all, you know, it's all the same, uh, you know, it's kind of, kind of the, same, the same genre, as it were. But take a look at how the Sefer HaChinuch applies it. Moves it away from the immediate context of being a, a message for judges 
and makes it more universal for all of us. If you don't mind, Jay, please read this one as well. Included in this commandment is the instruction to each individual to judge their fellows favorably and to deliberately interpret their conduct and statements in a positive light. Through judging others favorably, we will foster peace and harmony among people as a result of eliminating mutual suspicion. Look at that. Not only that, it, it, it fixes, it heals the world. Look what he says. Included in the commandment to, again, the initial commandment is to judge your fellow with righteousness, is the notion to judge each individual, oh, each individual to judge their fellows favorably. Deliberately interpret their conduct and statements in a positive light. That's big. That means don't just look at yourself in a positive light. In other words, when you do something, uh, not the best. So you tell yourself, okay, whatever, it wasn't great, I can fix it, I'll do better next time. You give yourself excuses. Do the same for the other. It's a, according to Sefer HaChinuch, it's a biblical mitzvah. Judge your fellow righteously means extend the same benefit of the doubt to the other guy. It's a biblical mitzvah from Leviticus. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And what that means is, yes, don't, don't throw away your bias. Don't throw it away. Keep it, the positive bias. Keep it for the other guy. I mean, a negative bias, throw away. But a positive bias that you have for yourself, keep it. And now use it for someone else. Make sure you look at them with the same radically positive view that you look at yourself. Um, okay. Now, the big question that we might ask from all the above is why? Why should we look at others with a positive eye? Maybe they're no good. Maybe we're good and they're no good. Hey, what, what, how, how do we know? So here comes the next big Jewish idea. This is a big idea. The essential nature of human beings from a Jewish perspective is good and godly. This is the next big Jewish idea. The essential nature of human beings is good and godly. You see, when it comes to defining the nature of human beings, there's a pretty big divide. There's a pretty sharp debate. On the one hand, you have experts such as Freud who swear by the notion that human beings are inherently messed up, narcissistic, cruel, and violent. Freud would argue, he does argue, that human beings at the core are pretty ugly. Take a look at text number three in Freud's own words. Take a look at text number three. We're putting it up here on the board. Um, Adina Malka, please take it away. Man is a wolf to man, Sigmund Freud. Men are not gentle creatures who want to be loved and who are at the most and who at the most can defend themselves if they are attacked. They are, on the contrary, creatures among whose instinctual endowments is to be reckoned a powerful share of aggressiveness. Uh, this is the Latin who, in the face of all his experience of life and of history, will have the courage to dispute this assertion. So, for, thank you. Freud, in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud argues that we are not passive creatures that will merely defend ourselves if attacked. We are the attackers. We are the aggressors. Man is a wolf to man. Homo homini lupus, or something like that. Right? Man is a, we are predators. 
to our fellow human beings. And he says, look at history. Look at your own life. Do you dare dispute this assertion? You don't think it's true? Look at the life. By the way, he wrote this in the 1930s. He wrote this in, uh, um, I think, 1930 maybe? When did he pass away? 1939. I think he wrote this in the early 30s, if not 1930 itself, which means he wrote this even before the Holocaust, before 6 million, before, and plus, 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 before, um, you know, the, the massacres and, 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 and just the, the millions killed by, you know, in Russia and in China. I mean, he, he wrote this before. So you look at history, you look at, at human nature, and Freud says, you know, I can tell you what lies at the heart of human nature, at the core of humanity. It's, it's evil. It's, uh, it's, it's harshness. It's cruelty. It's aggression. It's people seeking, uh, seeking to harm the other. It's, it's, it's a wolf mentality toward our fellow, uh, f- fellow human being. That's one position. Now, on the other hand, you have other great thinkers, other students of the human condition, other psychologists, who maintain that, no, uh, on the contrary, humans at their core are civil civilized and socialized creatures. Take a look at the writings of psychologist Carl Rogers. Okay, that's our next text. Text number, what is that? Okay, text number four. Text number four, let's ask, let's see, let's ask Sarah. Sarah, can you please read text number four? Sure, a positive view of human nature. One of the most revolutionary concepts to grow out of our clinical experience is the growing recognition that the innermost core of man's nature, the deepest layers of his personality, the base of his animal nature, is positive in nature, is basically socialized, forward-moving, rational, and realistic. Well, there you go. Carl Rogers. Boom. Um, We call him Mr. Rogers. I'm kidding. Different guy. Carl Rogers, right? He says uh, the, the, the core nature, the core of man's nature is positive. Socialized, forward-moving, rational, realistic. Wow, that's uh, that's very different than Freud. So we have a big again a machloket. We have another dispute. Before we had a dispute between two online dictionaries. All right, I think we navigated that. Now we have a dispute between leading psychologists, Freud and Rogers. Freud says humans are. I'm just going to paraphrase. Rotten at the core, and Rogers says good at the core. So which one is it? Which one is it? So you know. Freud sees bad. Roger sees good. So what does Judaism say? Honestly, none of the above. I am maybe taking you for a loop, but Judaism disagrees with both. Let me explain. Yes, Judaism maintains the body is animalistic in nature, and yes, human beings possess something called the animal soul. But at the core of our being, is not some biological goodness, it's not some animalistic goodness, as Rogers would have it, nor is it the, the narcissistic you know, evil or cruelty or aggression of, of Freud. Judaism maintains that at the core of our being, the core of our being, keep on digging past everyone else, all these other layers, and you'll hit a pure godly soul that is at the very center of humanity. The very center is a pure, godly soul. We see this in the liturgy, prayers that we recite every single morning. It's such a beautiful meditation. I'm going to skip a few texts. We're going to get back to it. Don't worry. I got you covered over here. Take a look at text number seven. Richard, if you don't mind, please read text number seven. Elokai Neshama. You can read it in the English, please. Okay. 
My God, the soul that you have placed uh, in me is pure. You created it, you formed it, you breathed it into me, and you preserve it within me. We make it, thank you, we make a declaration every single morning that the center of my being is pure. You, God, created it, formed it, breathed it into me, you preserve it within me. That is the core of my being. It's such an, a powerful self-affirmation. It's affirming that we do not subscribe to the Freudian view, that humans are just merely aggressive animals, nor do we ascribe to the Rogers view that we're gentle animals. We are not an animal at the core. We have a body and an animal soul, but at the core is a pure divine reality, a pure divine soul. If you look back at Rogers, you'll see he talks about the animal, you know, the animal, the inner animal. It's not an animal. Judaism says no to Freud and no to Rogers, even though Rogers took a more positive view. It's still limited. It's still limited vis-a-vis Judaism's view. It's not an animal at the core. It's not an animal. It is, it is, um, it's God. It reminds me of a funny story. Um, They say that when the first locomotives reached Russia, you know, because Chabad has its roots in Russia, so when the first, so we have these like anecdotes, when the locomotive first reached Russia, so there's one chassid who said to the other, unbelievable, how do they get the horses so small into the, into the, it's like you think like at the core of it, there's got to be, right, everything runs with horses, so if you have something that's moving, you can't see the horses, there must be small horses inside. Right, that's the mindset. It's got to be a horse. So Roger says, of course it's an animal, but it's a civilized animal. It's a rationalized animal. Judaism says, what animal? There's no horses inside. <laughs> I mean, there also is. But at the core, it's not a horse. It's a divine soul. It's a spiritual core. And that is the core of our goodness. That's the core of our beauty. Everything else, all the drama, all the other drama, is a more superficial layer our innermost core is positive and beautiful and godly. So Rogers, to summarize, Rogers sees a nice animal. Freud sees the id. And Judaism? Well, you know what I'm going to say. Judaism sees the yid. Oh, look at that one. Not the id, but the yid. And because of that, because of Judaism's fierce view of human beings being essentially pure and good, we are mandated by Jewish law, by Torah itself, to see others and treat others that way. Again, because Judaism foundationally uh, um, understands that human beings have a pure and godly soul at their core, so Judaism therefore demands from you and I, from us personally, that we look at others and see them for that. The rose-tinted glasses. So you see yourself as a good person. Of course, I know I'm a, I don't, no one has to convince me. I know I'm a good person. I, the fact that I did this or didn't do that, all right, they're working on it. Eh, no big deal. I'm a good person. Great. So we said, see the other person put on those same lenses for the other one. See them the same way. But how? They're different than me. How can I love them the same way? Because, oh, because you need to know, because you know, how, how can you do that? When you know that they have a godly core at their center, just like you. So now you can extend the same, the same tinting, the same shading to them as to yourself. Because you know that like you, they possess a godly soul at their core. That's who they are. Everything else doesn't mean much. Everything else is just a work in progress. Just, about, just Everything else is just a tweak. Mark is asking about 
the Russia of Tanya. Even the Russia, even the Russia, the, the wicked person, even the wicked person. We'll see that tonight, actually. Even the person that's done things wrong. Again, all it takes is a pivot. Nothing stands in the way of tshuva. We said that uh, at lesson was it three or four. We talked about tshuva being a personal, um, you know, personal um, uh, pivot towards some, toward a po- positive behavior. That that is no matter what, no matter who. Everyone we had that in that lesson. You know, every person, everything, every context, everyone can always do teshuva. I mean, it takes work, but it can always be done. Why? Because at the core, it's not teshuva. Also means return. Because at the end of the day, we're not going somewhere else. We're just returning to our essence, which is pure and divine and godly and good. So, to summarize more or less everything that I've set up until now, we started out by talking about various forms of bias. And essentially, we came to a place where there's two forms of bias. One where it's selectively applied and one where it's consistently applied. Um, The selective application of bias, that's prejudice. That's not great. Um, in the context of today's discussion, one example of this would be where you look at yourself in a positive light and look at the other in a negative light. Yourself, for yourself, you, you, you choose to see the best case scenario. For the other, the worst case scenario. That's not good. That's precious. The, the solution to that is adopting the second definition of bias, which means that you apply a filter consistently across the board for you and for the other guy, which means that you look at yourself in the best light and you look at the other guy with the best light also, just the way you look, you look at yourself. Then we ask the question, how can you, how, but how do you, how do you get there? What kind of, how do you get yourself to a place where you look at the other in the best light? Uh, maybe I don't look at them like that. And the answer, one, one solution, again, Jew, consistent with the Jewish outlook on life itself, on human beings in general, Judaism reminds us again and again that at the core of every human being is a beautiful, pure, divine, godly soul. And therefore, just like you have that goodness, they also. So if you look at yourself and judge yourself predominantly by your goodness, by your inner, by your innate goodness, that's your soul, right? And then everything else is just, you know, no, no big deal. Look at the other one the same way. I look at, if, if I can get myself to perceive the other as a godly soul, that's my rose-tinted glasses, and now I can effectively apply the second definition of bias across the board to everybody in a positive way and look at everybody with love, generosity, kindness, and forgiveness. Okay, that takes us to the halfway point. Perfect timing. That takes us to the halfway point of today's class. In Judaism, and and let me just check in. Does does all this make sense, more or less? Yeah, okay. I'm going to share with you a phrase that is stated in the Talmud and in Jewish law, and it's a pretty dynamic phrase. Two words. Two words. You see, this perspective on human beings, that we look at not only ourselves, but others as having a soul and pure and beautiful and divine, this leads to the following radical legal dynamic. The phrase is cheskat kashrut. Are you anybody familiar with the term chazaka or chazaka? Chazaka, yeah. It means uh, an assumption or presumption, where you just not only assume, you like you know, you presume, you, you know that this is the case. Cheskat kashrut means that there's a presumption of propriety, or a presumption of goodness, or a presumption of righteousness. 
which means that all things being equal, Judaism will always begin when looking at people, will always begin with the presumption that people are good and righteous. I'm going to say that one more time. Because of everything we've set up until now, including the Torah's commandment to judge your fellow righteously, etc. Because of all that, there is this notion called cheskat kashru, which means that when we look at someone, when Jewish law assesses a situation and could either assume positive intent or negative intent, do we assume that the person is good or is not good? What does Judaism say? We assume that the person is good. Cheskat kashus. We always apply, first and foremost, until we know otherwise, we always apply the benefit of the doubt and the presumption that this person is righteous. This person is good. Now, I want to right off the bat differentiate this from the presumption of innocence in the U.S. legal system. Now, the United States, as of course you know in criminal cases, so the, um, you know, not, not in civil suits, there's a different uh, standard of evidence, but in criminal cases, the standard, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. And um, it's, uh, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, I think is, uh, is, is the language that's used typically. And, and that's based on a presumption of innocence. Presumption of innocence is different than presumption of righteousness. Again, the U.S. notion of presumption of innocence is very different than presumption of righteousness. Let me explain what I mean by first looking at how presumption of innocence plays out in U.S. courts. So we're going to look at text number five. Now this is um, coming from the state of Massachusetts. Basic standardized jury instructions. When you when you give the judge gives instructions to the jury how to you know determine a case. This is uh, part of what they're told. I'm going to share my screen with you. This is text number five. So we're going to scroll back a little bit and look at this. Massachusetts is record criminal model jury instructions. I'm going to read this. The law presumes the defendant to be innocent of the charge or all the charges against him or her. This presumption of innocence is a rule of law that compels you, the jury, to find the defendant not guilty unless and until the Commonwealth produces evidence from whatever source that proves that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This burden of proof never shifts. The defendant is not required to call any witness, any witnesses or produce any evidence since he or she is presumed to be innocent. The presumption of innocence stays with the defendant unless and until the evidence convinces you unanimously as a jury that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It, it requires you to find the defendant not guilty unless his or her guilt has been proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Does that make sense? Yes, that's like a standard um, boilerplate um, instruction. These are standard instructions that the, that the judge would give a jury in a criminal case regarding how they're supposed to adjudicate. They should not begin with the presumption that the defendant is guilty and, 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 and wait for them, you know, to prove their innocence. No, no, it's the other way around. Presumption is innocence. And uh, let, the, let the prosecution, let the commonwealth, let the state, you know, prove its case. Now, so does that presumption of innocence translate into cheska kashra, presumption of righteousness? The answer is not at all. Two different things. The jury is not being told that this person, the defendant, is good, not being told they're a good person. There's a presumption of innocence in this in, uh, regarding this charge. Are you with me on what I'm saying? There's a presumption of innocence in a very narrow space. 
vis-a-vis -vis the charges that are being brought against the defendant, the jury is instructed that they have to operate with the principle, with the perspective that this individual is innocent until proven guilty. That doesn't mean that they're a good person. That doesn't mean that they're a righteous person. It means vis-a-vis -vis these charges, we have to presume or assume innocence until proven guilty. By the way, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1978, Taylor versus Kennedy, has already walked back that word presumption. And it said it's not really a presumption, it's more of an assumption. Not a presumption, but an assumption. What's the difference? Presumption means it's like a stronger sense of the word. It's like you presume means like you take it for a fact. Assumption means we're assuming. You know, we're, you know, we're thinking. So we're not presuming anything about the innocence or guilt. We're just assuming innocence. We're not presuming innocence. We're assuming innocence until proven guilty. That's the way the Supreme Court in 78 kind of clarified really the, the specificities of the language. But the bottom line here is that the Jewish version of this, which is not really the same, but the Jewish notion of cheskat kashrut, and I feel like I'm going to write in the chat box, let me write that, that word, that phrase over here, um, cheskat kashrut, okay? I just, I'm sending that to everybody. Cheskat kashrut. Cheskat means a chazaka of or an a presumption of. Kashrut, not about food. Kashrut means propriety, being kosher. So the, assumption, the presumption is that people are kosher. It's different than the presumption of innocence. It's not about a specific case. It's that you're kosher, you're a good person. We presume that people are good people. Um, it's literally, literally the presumption that people are good and righteous. Now, the Maharashtam, the Maharashtam, who was a 16th century halachic legal, Jewish legal expert, gives some really powerful framing to this notion of cheska kasha. Why this assumption that people are good? And he illustrates the power of human cheska kashrut, the human presumption of righteousness, by comparing it to the presumptive status of an animal being prepared for kosher food. So let me explain. Let, let, me, let me explain for a second. Let's start with an animal. Okay, let's shift the conversation away from people to animals. So let's say you start off with a cow. I'll ask you a question. Is a cow a kosher animal? Is a cow kosher? Sure. Sure. In fact, I remember the famous commercial, where's the beef? I'm kidding. So, well, I do, but side point. So cows are kosher. But is a live cow kosher? If you have a cow in a field, is it kosher? So you say, it's a kosher type of animal, but it's not kosher. You can't eat it. Why can't you eat it? Why can't you eat a cow in the field? Help me out here. Alive. It's alive. Wow, it sounds like Frankenstein. It's alive, right? It's, you can't eat a live animal. It's Aver Menachai. You can't, you just can't do it. It's one of the seven Ohio laws to, no high laws to boot. Cruelty to animal. You can't do that. You can't just yank off. It's gross. You can't eat a live animal. It has to be, according to Jewish law, it's got to be slaughtered properly. So although the, the cow is kosher, it's not really kosher yet. So its status as a live animal is actually not kosher. It's a kosher type of animal, but it's not actually kosher in, this, in, the current, current, in the current form. Are you with me on this? Yes? Yeah, because if you chef it the wrong way, then you've rendered it non-kosher. Correct, correct. But in its current state, pre-anything, while it's still alive, it's definitely not kosher. Now, now, yeah, now, here's the next piece. Quick, quick interruption. Sure. So how is clean meat okay because the animal's still living? 
Listen, that's okay. Good. You're talking about lab lab generated beef. Good. Yeah. Well, well, listen. Let's let's save that for another conversation. That's it's a good question, but we'll. The point is, some argue that if at the end the the source animal is still alive, it can create a problem. It's a good question, but let's let's leave that aside for a second. So the bottom line is, you have a cow. It's a kosher type of animal, but it's not actually kosher at this stage. It's chazaka. Its status, chazaka status. Its status is not kosher as of right now. What happens if somebody slaughters the animal, shechts the animal? You, you have a ritual slaughter, shechts the, slaughters the animal. So what's uh, so what happens then? It's kosher. You, you you slaughtered the animal in the in the rec, in the in the proper way. Mazel tov. It's kosher. Hold on, one, there's, there's another catch. Time out, there's another catch. You know, even after you've slaughtered the animal, Jewish law says the animal has to be healthy. If the animal would have died within a year because it was unhealthy, it had a defect, it had, a, I don't know, something, and it was going to die within a year, it's not a kosher animal. You know what it's called? It's called a trefa. You ever hear the word treif? It's not the way everyone uses it. Trefa means that it's an animal that had a moral injury or wound and it would have died within a year. That's the literal definition of the word trefa. Trefa means that although it's a cow, which is kosher, and although you slaughtered it correctly, it still might not be kosher if there's something, if there's a, like a mortal defect in the animal. But the other reality is you don't have to do a full cow autopsy to like examine all the internals and say like, okay, how long did this cow have to live before I took its like? You know, all you check are the lungs. I've, told, I've shared this many times. My grandfather was a shochet, a ritual slaughterer. Um, in his later years, he focused, he was the, the lung expert. He had a, a, a gift for examining the lungs to make sure that the lungs were, were, were viable, were kosher, were intact. Basically, when it comes to animals, they eat, they, there's a lot of, they ingest, they eat a lot of stuff, and a lot of stuff bounces around over there. So many times the lungs are punctured. They have like puncture holes in, in the lungs which means that the animal, although it was living, it wouldn't have lived that long. If there's a hole in the lungs, it's a, it's a treif. It's a trefa. It's, it's not a, you can't eat it. It's not kosher. So they check the lungs. There's, I'm not going to get into the details how they check the lungs, but that's the only thing they check. You don't check anything else. So once you check an animal and you check the lungs, then the, and it's fine, so then the assumption is it's kosher. That's all we need to know for right now. I know it's a long introduction, but take a look at what the Maharashtam, also a big name, um, what he says about human cheskat kashrut, human presumption of righteousness as compared to an animal's presumption of being kosher. I hope any, some of this makes sense. Just take a, look, take, take a look at the screen and you'll see what I mean. Okay, this is the next text. Um, by the way, the Maharashtam is Rabbi Shmuel de Medina from the 1500s. Okay, it is clear and established that we are all presumed to be righteous. Cheskat kashrus. Cheskat kashrut. We are presumed to be righteous. This is analogous to presumptions we use regarding the kosher status of animals. That's why I gave you that whole intro to explain this. As long as an animal is alive, it is forbidden for consumption. Can't eat a live animal. And it is presumed to have remained in the state of being a, a prohibition until we can ascertain that it has been slaughtered properly. Once the animal has been slaughtered properly, it is then presumed to be kosher unless it is clearly proven to be non-kosher due to a severe physical defect like a hole in the lung. 
Okay, basically, we have a lot of presumptions for animals. Initially, we presume them to be not kosher. It's alive, it's not kosher. After it's slaughtered properly, we presume it to be kosher unless we find out otherwise. Similarly, he says, God created each of us upright and honest by nature. Upright, you could also use the word upstanding, like a, a mensch, you know, yashar, upstanding and honest by nature. Talk about a, a fiercely positive view, right? It's a Jewish view of humankind. People retain this presumption of righteousness unless it has been clearly proven that they have chosen to veer from the way of truth and righteousness and follow a deceitful and crooked path. I think this also addresses, Mark, your question, although we're going to walk this back a little bit a little bit later, but the point here is that the presumption, the natural presumption for a human be- of a human being is that they are kosher, that they are righteous. And you retain that presumption of righteousness until something happens that says otherwise. But the default, if we don't know otherwise, our default assumption or presumption is kosher. Kosher. Again, we started off today's class with looking at how, with, with addressing how do we look at people? Just like, you know, between us. Like, how do, you, how do you look at someone? Do you judge them? Do you not judge them favorably, disfavorably? Now we're getting into some legal definitions. This is where Jewish theory imprints and impacts Jewish law. Because now, on a legal level, on a legal level, we have this cheskat kashrut. We have this presumption of righteousness, which means that all things being equal, if we don't know anything else, we presume that somebody acted in a positive way as opposed to a negative way, which will have major, major halachic Jewish legal ramifications. This idea of Cheska Kashrut has multiple ramifications of which we are going to bring upwards of four cases tonight. We'll see if we can get all four, maybe three, hopefully four cases. So again, just to, just to summarize, according to Judaism, our status, status of everyone, is righteous until proven guilty. Not innocent until proven guilty, righteous until proven guilty, which is a much bigger jump. It's not like innocent of this charge, but yeah, you're a bad guy, but we can't, you know, of this charge, you're innocent. No, 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 no. This is, we view a person righteous until proven guilty. It's a radical take. And of course, this radical take of Judaism on a per, about a person's presumed propriety and righteousness has a major impact on Jewish law. So what we're going to do now is study, hopefully, four cases of Jewish law that are dramatically shaped by this cheskat kashrut, by this presumption of righteousness. So a few moments ago, we talked about the basic rules of kosher meat. So you start off with a kosher type of animal, like a cow, then you have to slaughter it properly, and, and you go from there. Now the laws of ritual kosher slaughtering are pretty complex. Um, it takes years of study and training um, to be a ritual uh, uh, kosher meat slaughter, known in Hebrew as a shochet, and only an expert is allowed to do it. So that's that's the way it works. Um, like to become a rabbi, you have to have you know certain areas of Jewish knowledge under your belt. If you want to specialize in a certain field, it's kind of like medicine, I think. I'm not a doctor. Um, but if you want to specialize in a certain field, you have to like really train in that area and apprentice under others and really do a lot of hands-on training. So same thing is true with a shochet, with a a ritual slaughter. There's years of study 
and apprenticeship. And your knife is being checked. You know, you gotta you gotta learn how to make your knife perfectly sharp and how to check properly without getting into the details. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's it's a process. Take a look at what Ramba Maimonides writes about this. This is text number nine. Um, let me share that with you. Give me a second. Let's fast forward to text number nine. Okay, this is from Maimonides. Kosher slaughter qualifications. Really, it's about kosher, the kosher slaughterer. Um, Steve, if you don't mind, Steve, please unmute, jump in, and please read text number nine. A Jew who doesn't know the laws of Shechita, uh, kosher slaughter, may not slaughter. Any meat slaughtered by such a person is forbidden for consumption. Even a person who knows the laws of kosher slaughter should not slaughter alone before practicing many times under the supervision of an expert scholar and achieving proficiency in the technique. In the technique. Only a person who is well-versed in the laws of Shechita and have practiced under expert supervision until achieving proficiency is considered a qualified expert. Thank you. This last paragraph has really, I think, summarized it. So you have to be number one. There's two, there's two qualifications, two criteria. Number one, well-versed in the laws. You have to know the laws. And number two, you have to have practice under an expert who can you know, see if you know what you're doing or not. Look, it's one thing to learn it from the books. It's another thing to actually uh, shecht. It's uh, two different things. It's like parenting. You know what I mean? It's like there's parenting in the books and then there's an actual child. Two different things. Okay, so that's with, with regard to shechita. So all of this leads to the following question. And this is, going to be our, this is going to be case number one, the unknown slaughterer. Okay, case one, the unknown slaughterer. Take a look at this case. Um, what happens... If someone new arrives in town, shechts a bunch of animals, that means ritually slaughters a bunch of animals, and then bounces before we have a chance to check their certification. Are you with me on this? Somebody comes in town with a knife, I guess with a knife, and says, hey, have any cows? Right? And they shecht some animals, and then they bounce, they move on, and you're like, who was that? I don't know. Did you know him? Did you know him? I don't know. Was he certified? Who did he train under? Does he know the laws? Is this okay? Is it kosher? Can we eat the meat? What do you do? Let me just take a quick poll. What do you think? Kosher or not kosher? What do you think? Kosher or not kosher? Not kosher. Not kosher. Okay. That's what, that's, I think, that's what we would intuitively say. However, this is JLI. Come on. We know, we know the drill already. This is the, these are plot twists. Plot plot twists for days. Tom Clancy has nothing. John Grisham, was that a guy? Nothing on these, on these classes. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at text number 10. You're going to love this. Rambam again. Maimonides, our go-to guy. Laws of kosher slaughter, 4-7. Look what he says. If a Jew came and slaughtered an animal and left before we were able to determine whether or not he was a proficient practicer. We don't know who he was. Who is this masked man? The meat may be consumed. Look at that line. You can eat it. Unbelievable. Why? Let's continue. The rationale for this law is that the majority of slaughter practitioners are experts. So most people carrying around a big knife, you call that a knife, right? Most people, something like that. 
something, something, something. Most people carrying around a shaykhet's knife, a ritual slaughter's knife, and doing the deed, all right, you can, most of them are, are experts. Let's just see the line again. I don't want to paraphrase the, the line. He says, the rationale is that the majority of slaughter practitioners are experts, so we don't know who this is, but we can assume the majority are experts. Make sense? Yes. Not to me. Oh, no, 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 no. I have a problem with this. I have a problem with this. It doesn't make sense. What are the odds? Let's just, let's just throw some numbers. Uh, we, we're not going to know numbers, but let's just say. Maimonides just said the majority of, kosher, uh, of ritual slaughters are experts. The majority. Ah, he doesn't say all. He says the majority. So where, where are we putting the odds? Is it 80-20? Is it 80-20? Like 80% they know what they're doing. 20% they're just winging it? They're just faking it? Yeah, you hear these stories from like Florida. People practicing law that were never done. You see this? This always happens. I don't know why Florida always... For some reason. It's not picking on Florida. Don't worry, Sarah. We love Florida. I'm just saying like you find like these cases where like... I don't know. Some teenager was seeing patients and like what, what's even going on here. But anyway... Maimonides says most of them are experts, not doctors. Most ritual slaughters are experts. So 90-10? Even 90-10. You know what that means? That means that this meat has a 90% chance of being kosher. Great. So we're rolling the dice, 10% not kosher, and we're like, yeah, no problem, you can eat it. You kidding me? Since when? Since when do we roll dice when it comes to kosher? We're rolling dice? Best out of 10? I mean, who's doing, like, what is this, ping pong? Like, what are we doing? The first two 11, you got to win by two? What are we doing here? What's going on? Right? It's like, 90-10, we're good, it's fine, eat it, enjoy, enjoy the ribeye. What's, like, what's, 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 the, what's the theory here? Listen to this. I'm about to share with you an insight from, um, this insight is from Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik. Now this Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik is known as, give me a second, the Beit HaLevi. And he lived in the 1800s. Listen to this. Listen to this concept. This will blow your mind. And he explains Rambam, Maimani's position as follows. Number one, we have two, two, two factors here. Number one, most ritual slaughterers, most, are experts. Whatever that percentage is, 80-20, 90-10, most are experts. When you look at the big picture. But we're not talking big picture. We're not writing, uh, you know, we're not actuaries, you know, creating an insurance algorithm. We're dealing with one case in real time. Somebody came to town, slaughtered some animals or an animal, and, and left. And now the question is, bottom line, is this meat kosher? Rabbi Soloveitchik says, we don't look at the big picture. We don't say 80-20, 90-10, which would still be a little bit um, uncomfortable with, with, we would still be uncomfortable eating it. He says, once we establish that most are most shachta, most ritual slaughters are experts, they know what they're doing. At that point, we assume, because of Cheskat Kashrut, that the guy that came in and did it was 100 percent an expert. Are you with me on that? Once we once we understand that most are experts, generally speaking, then we assume that the guy that was right in front of us was a guy who knew what he was doing. Why? Cheskat kashrut. A presumption of propriety and righteousness. Take a look at what Rabbi Soloveitchik writes. This is unbelievable. Take a look at text number 11. We consider every Jew as certainly righteous. That's the presumption. 
unless we know otherwise. We are certain that they are particular about the laws of kosher shechita slaughter and wouldn't slaughter if they weren't the qualified expert. As a result, we don't say that since there exists a minority of non-experts who slaughter, the animal remains in its established non-kosher status. Among righteous Jews, there is not even a minority that would act improperly. The minority of unrighteous Jews isn't a factor worthy of consideration because every Jew that has not been established as suspect must be considered as undoubtedly righteous. The presumption of righteousness is thus not, is thus not just majority-based. I need to explain that line. 90-10 is a big picture number. But when you're looking at one person, you have to assume, unless you know otherwise, that they're of the majority and they're 100% kosher. Are you with me on that? 90-10 is overall. But when you're looking at one case, one person, one shochet, is it kosher or not? The presumption is, sure it's good. Why, why would we assume otherwise? Because some people may not do it right. But who says that this guy didn't do it right? Why would we assume that this guy is, 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 is uh, anything but righteous, is anything but doing it correctly? That's what he says. Okay? Even though we know the bigger picture. So we're not blind to the bigger picture, that sometimes things go, people go rogue. It's kind of like, you know what it's like? Human nature. person's going to say, look, you know, you take, you take 100 people, there's a few bad apples. So therefore, anyone who comes my way, I'm going to judge suspiciously. No, that's not Jewish. That's not kosher. That's not cheska kashrut. Cheska kashrut is, I know that out of a hundred people, a few are going to be a little bit, you know, shady. Or out of a thousand people, out of a million people. But every individual that comes my way, I have to start with the presumption of righteousness. Are you with me on the difference? Big picture, small picture? It's kind of like uh, insurance will say that out of a hundred people, X number will die before X age. But that doesn't mean that any individual has a death sentence on their head. You with me on the difference? That's how the Rebbe explains, by the way, why, um, why the Egyptians were punished. Even though God had told Abraham that the Egyptians were going to enslave the Jewish people. If God predicted it, if God kind of made it happen, why would, why would God then punish the Egyptians? So he said it's kind of like insurance. That's what he answers in a letter. It's kind of like insurance. God decreed on the Egyptians that they would enslave the Jewish people, but not on the individual Egyptian. Why did you opt in? Why, why did you opt in? Oh, you opted in? Now you're in trouble. It was, it, was on the, it was on the nation, not on the individual. In a reverse kind of way, it's the same thing over here. Right? There's a, there's a general sense of, you know, a mixed bag of propriety and impropriety amongst people. You know, you have a big group of people. Some are not going to be so, so kosher. But when it comes to the individual, unless we know otherwise, the starting point is kosher, kosher, kosher. Which is why if one guy comes to town slaughters a few animals, and then leaves town, and we're not sure, like, is he good, is he not good? The assumption is, the starting point is, kosher. Are you with me on this? Yes? So that is how, again, understand where we're going with this and how we got here. Understand that the Jewish view of others, this whole kumbaya, we got to love each other as ourselves and judge each other righteously, and we think it's like fluff, a bunch of fluff, Jewish fluff, Jewish fluff, like, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, Right? No, this is halacha. This is Jewish law. This is, can you eat the steak or not? The fact that you can eat that steak, even though you don't know who just, you, don't, you have no idea who that person is, is because you judge them favorably. It's because when they walked in and they shechted the animal, you are assuming or presuming that they are acting righteously. Cheskat kashrut means, cheskat kashrut means that we grant the person 
the presumption of righteousness. So enjoy the meat, enjoy the steak. Now, Brother that's, Bob, yes. Then how is it <clears throat> we have uh, hepsures like Triangle K, which most of us don't accept, which uh, uh, Chabad for sure and, and, and OU don't, don't accept, because uh, even though it's a righteous Jew doing it, they're saying he's not doing it right. But based on this, if he's a righteous Jew, he must be doing it right. That's a case, the, the Maimani's case is where you don't know the status. So then you assume that it's good. But if you know, if they have stated standards and those standards don't meet your standards, it's not a judgment, by the way. It's not like somebody's going to say, oh, that's bad. It's something like, that's not my standard. So this is not a question. That Maimani's case is where, you're, where you, you don't know. So he says, so you have to assume that it's fine. But in a case where you do know, because they have clear guidelines as to what they consider kosher or not, and you know that you're, you have a little bit of a stricter or a little bit of a different uh, standard, so then it's totally fair to say it's not my standard, so therefore I'm not going to eat it. That's not assuming any impropriety. That's literally accepting their own, um, their own, their own uh, standards. Not accepting, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's working with their own guidelines and saying, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to opt for something something on a different standard. But I understand the question. Now, let's move on. We have a few more cases. So we're not going to get to all four. We're going to, hopefully, we'll get to three. So we'll, 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 let's get to two more. So that's one example. What we just said is one example of how, the, um, of how the law is filtered or is influenced by the positive outlook on another person. Because of the positivity, the positivity bias, right? Because of that, we can eat the meat, even though we don't know exactly who just, who just did that. Let's look at the next case. This is the case that I call the grabber-nabber. I call this case the grabber-nabber. In my, in my family, the grabber-nabber is like a thing with like a squeeze thing that grabs things. We call that the grabber-nabber, but I'm using that for a little bit of a different case. This is gonna be a case that's gonna test your um, patience. I'm kidding, not your patience, but test like, you'll see what I mean in a second. Um, this, this case may irritate you, but stay with me. Uh, text number 12. Now, here's the case, the Talmud talks about this. Witnesses saw a person enter another's house and leave with items concealed beneath his garments. Are you with me? So some guy walks into someone else's house and leaves with like a lamp under his shirt. Totally normal. The possessor of the items, in other words, the guy with the, with the lamp under his shirt, claims that he purchased them. While the, He's like, oh yeah, I totally bought this. Totally bought this and just stuffed it under my shirt. While the owner of the house denies this. The law in this case is that the possessor is not believed. Okay, he has to give it back. This principle, and, and we're just, and, and we're not really going to focus on that first case. We're going to focus on this case. This principle only applies when the homeowner claims that the items, items in question were on loan, and the possessor claims that they were purchased. But if the homeowner, listen to this. But if the homeowner claims that the items were stolen, his accusation is rejected. For we do not presume a person to be a thief without proof. Okay? And this is where you're going to get triggered. Right? If the homeowner claims the items were stolen, his accusation is rejected because we don't presume a person to be a thief without proof. Let's understand what this case is and what it's not. Ruvain walks into Shimon's house and walks out with a lamp under his shirt. Witnesses see this. And then Shimon says at some later point, this dude stole my lamp. And Shimon says, no, actually, 
you gave it to me, or I bought it, or whatever. What's the law? Who gets the lamp? We know that possession is nine-tenths of the law, but do we say possession is nine-tenths of the law in this case, where witnesses saw him walk into the house and walk out, and suspiciously, it's under his clothing? What's going on? The Talmud says that in a case where the owner accused him of theft, we actually let the guy with the lamp keep it because we don't assume that this guy's a thief without proof. In other words, and the commentaries have a debate about what, what drives this rationale, but many opinions believe that, that what drives this case, the rationale behind this case, that drives the law, the ruling, is cheskat kashrut, the same legal theory, the same concept that we've been discussing uh, in the latter half of tonight's class. Because we view other people as righteous and good, they have a presumption of propriety, which means, therefore, when the guy walks out with a lamp under his shirt, yes, it looks super sus, it looks super suspect and suspicious. We cannot assume or presume that this person is a thief without other proof. And proof would mean, I don't know, somebody saw him steal it or somebody saw him, you know, he claims the guy gave it to him. You gave it to me as a gift. And now you want it back. I was putting it under my shirt because, I don't know, I didn't want to get ruined or something. Who knows why? Any number of reasons why. But you want to accuse him, you want to convict him or accuse him, accuse and convict him of being a thief? You got to provide evidence. The only evidence we have is the fact that he walked out with it under his clothing. But that doesn't prove that he stole it. To prove that he stole it is a pretty big, that's a pretty bold accusation. And we don't, as the Talmud says, we don't presume that people are thieves. Why not? Because people have a cheskat kashrut, because they have a presumption of righteousness. Therefore, we don't willy-nilly assume that they're a thief, that they're a ganif, unless there's proof that they're a ganif. You have to have proof. Otherwise, enjoy the lamp, my friend. Uh, by the way, this is not a loophole to walk into people's houses, put it under your... Uh, your, uh, your, your, your clothing and walk out with stuff. Don't do that. But it means absent of other evidence, in this case the only evidence is, or the only eyewitness uh, evidence is that he walked out with that thing, but we don't know that he stole it, uh, per se. In that case, we cannot uh, convict him of theft and make him return it because Cheskat Kashrut drives us to say, who says he's a thief? We have to assume he's innocent until... Sorry, righteous until proven guilty. Does that make sense? Does that case make sense? No, it doesn't make sense at all. Okay, David, explain why. Someone walks into my house, walks out with an object from my house. That's not evidence that he's a thief? Well, no, he claims that you gave it to him. Okay, and I said I didn't. Right, so now it's he said, he said. The evidence is he walked into my house and, and took an item out of my house. Right, which would also be the scenario if you gave him something, right? People walk into my house all the time and walk out with stuff. Um, not okay. under shirts. Huh? Yeah, right. So that's right. That's where it gets a little suspect. And that pushes, or that's where the Talmud is pushing the envelope on this case, where if he really just handed it to you, then why was it under your shirt? So there's a little bit of a, of a, of a you know, that's a little bit suspicious, but at the same time, we can come up with any number of reasons why. I mean, maybe it's something that he didn't want to get wet or didn't want the sun to shine. Who knows, right? So does he have to give it back to you? You say, hey, that's mine. I didn't give you permission. He says, yes, you did. Does he get to go home with it? Uh, so first of all, before I answer that question, the answer is yes. But before I answer that question, um, I will say that this case, I said before, I, I, my disclaimer, if you recall, was, this is for everybody, was that this will, this will uh, um, I don't know, this will agitate 
us. So I understand that, that, that this is, is a case that will, will, will wrinkle us. But this is Judaism's commitment to the notion of presumption of propriety. The Cheskat Kashrut says that, number one, you have a bunch of competing ideas here. Number one, possession is nine-tenths of the law. But the problem with that is, yeah, but how did he get possession? He got it, walking, we know that he walked in someone's house and walked out with something. But on the other hand, so on the one hand is possession. On the other hand is, but he walked in someone's house. The other hand is, he said that the guy gave it to him. The other hand is the guy said he didn't. So we have all these competing facts or competing claims. And we don't really, we don't really actually have clarity, definitive clarity as to whether or not it was stolen. I mean, how, do you, how would you know if it's stolen? If you would see him surreptitiously, you know, take something, could he still claim that he was given permission beforehand? That gets a little shady. But here, there are no witnesses that, that can ascertain whether or not the guy handed it to him, you know, goodwill, or he took it when the guy wasn't looking. The witnesses are standing outside, and they see him walk in, and they see when he walks back out. There's no clear evidence that he stole it. All we know is that it came from that house, but that doesn't prove that it's a theft. And he does have possession, but the other guy claims that it was stolen. So where does Jewish law land? And I understand if this is not how any other legal system in the world would ever adjudicate this, or whatever judge's case, I get that. And I get that it may be completely against our, you know, our own convictions. And yet, I'll just put it back up here on the, on the screen. The Talmud says, if the homeowner... Straight up, if the homeowner claims that the items were stolen, his accusation is rejected. Assuming there's no other proof, right? For we do not presume a person to be a thief without proof. And then the counter-argument is, what do you mean without proof? You have proof. He walked into someone's house and walked out with a lamp under his shirt. Isn't that proof? Not really. According to Talmud, that's not, that, that doesn't satisfy the burden of proof. Why? Because that doesn't prove that he stole it. In fact, he will readily admit that he walked into the person's house and walked out with a lamp. He will actually readily admit that. This guy says, yeah, I walked into the guy's house and I walked out with a lamp. But he told me that I could. He gave it to me. I, listen, I get that it's, uh, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a, doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel right, 100% right to me either. But this is, I mean, you know, it's, I, I can understand it conceptually, either way. But the Talmud is operating with this perspective we have to start with a presumption of propriety, a presumption of not just innocence, but righteousness. When somebody is accused of something, the first assumption is they're righteous until proven guilty. Did the bar get passed? I don't know if that's the right word, but did we surpass the burden, the, the level of burden of evidence to prove that this guy stole it? According to the Talmud, the answer is no. But Rabbi, um, what if the guy did it the second time and the third time? He knows he's got this loophole. That's a great. That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to a case of a repeat uh, story like this. I'm with you. I, I don't. I don't know the answer to this question. Um, yeah. Okay. Now let's let's move on to one more case. Final case, and this will this will take us to the end of of today's session and the end of this course. This case I'm calling the sneaky agent. Sneaky agent. So here's, here's the general rule. I'm going to summarize a rule very quickly. The general rule is that if somebody is working on a purchase, buying something, you are not allowed to swoop in and, and take it away from them and, and purchase it. And I know we do this in America all the time. Someone's you know, looking to buy a house, looking to buy whatever it is. Somebody else swoops in and gives a higher offer. It's normal. 
It's capitalism. It's not kosher. And Judaism is not kosher. Now, that's not to say that we actually take it away from the one who bought it. But what we do is we wag our finger and say, that was wrong. That was wicked. You with me on this? If somebody is actively in the process of looking or seeking or actively purchasing something, and if another party swoops in, sweeps in, swoops in, and takes it away from them, that's not right. That's wicked. It's wicked behavior. I mean, it's still theirs, but it's wicked behavior. Listen to the final case. This is it. Imagine somebody assigns an agent on their behalf to purchase some real estate. Simple example. You identify a piece of land in some other county that you want to purchase. 10 acres of land, good deal, blah, blah, blah. So you appoint, and you're not going to go there and do the paperwork or whatever it is. So you, you hire or you assign an agent on your behalf to purchase the land. The agent comes back. And the contract says, has their name on the contract. They, are you with me on this? They purchased it. They put their name on the contract. Not their name on behalf of me, but their name, just their name. And now they claim, by the way, I bought it for myself. What? Talk about a double cross. Are you with me? I hired this guy, or I appoint this guy, to purchase land on my behalf, turns around, does the old backstab, and claims to purchase it for himself, and says, I'm not going to give it to you. (laughs) Sorry. Listen to this. You know what Jewish law would say? Although this guy is claiming to have acted wickedly, because you can't buy it. Somebody's actively buying it. You can't. I said this before, right? You can't just buy it out from under them. Somebody is claiming, the agent, to have acted wickedly? No. Impossible. Cheskar Kashrut. We have to assume that this guy acted with propriety. And if he acted with propriety, you know what that means? Who did he buy it for? You. You know what that means? Even though he signed his name, he was signing his name on behalf of you. You know what the court will do? They'll take the property and give it to you and not the agent. Why? Cheskat Kashrut. We assume that he acted with propriety. And the fact that he's claiming he bought it for himself, nah, he's just making up a story now. He would never have acted with impropriety, right? Cheskat Kashrut. I hope you understand. I hope you, you're, you're, you're connecting with, uh, with, this, with this case. Take a look. Let's just read it inside this. We'll close it out. Um, the Ran, Rabbi Nisim of Jerona, uh, says the following in text number four. A person appointed someone to serve as his agent to purchase a specific property. The agent purchased the property without specifying in the purchase agreement that he was doing so on behalf of the principal. And now he claims to have purchased it for himself in a personal capacity. The double cross. What's the law? What's the halacha? The law is that we reject the agent's claim on the grounds that the Talmud labels such such an action as deceitful conduct. And we operate under the assumption that the remnant of Israel will not commit an injustice. <laughs> Why would we assume that the agent acted deceitfully? On the contrary, he probably acted in a kosher way. Cheskat kashrut. He acted kosher, bought it for the principal, and that's where the land goes. Even when the agent claims to have double-crossed the principal, 
we double cross the double crosser. We say, oh, you think that you double crossed him? Hold my beer. You double crossed him? Don't worry. We're, we would never, even if you would think, even if you, 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 even if you admit to it, we would never presume that you acted egregiously, that you acted wickedly, that you acted you know, against Jewish law, Jewish ethics, Jewish values. We're not going to assume that. We'll assume that you acted with propriety. You acted in a kosher way. And what does that mean? You bought it for Yanko, for the, for the principal. Therefore, give him the land. I know you're making a lot of noise now, Mr. Agent, but we know that you acted correctly. And even though you put your name on it, it was on behalf of that guy, because after all, you were in his employ, uh, you were in his agency, you were his agent to purchase that land. That is the final case study that I'm going to share tonight. What we've seen from all these cases is just how far Jewish law goes with the notion that people are essentially good and righteous. You don't know who the ritual slaughter is? No problem. They're surely okay. Suspicious that this guy has taken a lamp from the other guy's house? Without proof, you can't deem him a thief. The agent says he acted on his own behalf? Nah. Who are you kidding? We don't believe you. Nah, I'm sure you acted correctly. These are real laws. These are not theories. These are real, in Jewish law, these are real cases with real case law that are all based on the law, the halachot in these cases are all based on the same Jewish value. The belief that people are inherently and essentially good. And I'll conclude with this. It's not a pipe dream. Studies have shown again and again that people by and large are good. There's a great study in the book. We're not going to read it. Great study. Uh, they, uh, researchers planted wallets around the country or other countries also around the world. Like lost wallets, uh, you know, with clearly visible um, ID card and money. Some, with mo- some without money, just ID cards. Some with some, a little bit of money, some with a lot of money. And the researchers figured that the more money in the wallet, the less likely it will be returned. You know what the studies actually showed? The opposite is true. The more money in the wallet, the more likely the finder would take the time to track down the owner and reach out and make that contact. You know why? Even though it surprised the researchers, it surprised the psychologists. I'll tell you who it surprises. Freud. Freud would be like, what? The wolf is giving back to the other? What? What is not wolf-like behavior? He didn't see the id. I'm doubling down on that one. Saw the id, not the id. That's it. It's the way it works. People are better than we think. <laughs> you know, you know for yourself that you're better than how most people look at you, right? Like, I'm better, much better than people judge me. Good. They're also better than you judge them. That's the way it is. Everyone's a little better than everyone else judges each other. This is what Judaism encouraged us to do. Judaism strives to drill this value in us. The value that people, all people, are inherently good and divine and righteous. This unflinching Jewish value imprints Jewish law in many, many ways. Unknown slaughter is kosher. Sneaking suspect is not a thief. And the agent bought that house for the guy that hired him. Once again, Jewish law following values. Now, of course, the lesson from tonight's class, the personal, moral, spiritual lesson for us is very clear in addition to the legal lessons that we drew out. The lesson, overarching lesson is clear. Torah exhorts us to love our fellows ourselves. 
Let's not hoard our kind and generous understanding and judgment for ourselves. Let's not hold that, only reserve that for ourselves. Let's put on those rose-colored glasses and keep them on for the other guy. Let's look at each other with love and generosity and goodwill because it will, because number one, it's true, and number one, and number two, it will affect the way that we treat each other. And in the process, as we read in the Sefer HaChinuch, it will create a better world for us all. May we share the love, and may that create a beautiful, healed world, a world of Mashiach. May it be speedily in our days, and let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me for these last six weeks. Thank you for joining me for Beyond Right. It's been a pleasure. I do want to mention that there are, thank you, thank you, there are some fantastic courses coming up in 5783, um, which I know is a long time coming. The next formal JLI courses are after the holidays. There will be more opportunities to study together. Don't worry before then. But in the fall, I'll just read you because I know there's always interest in what the upcoming next year's courses are. The fall course is called My God, Defining the Divine. I love that title. The winter course, the one that I'm working on as an editor, is called Booksmart, um, Judaism's Most Important Titles and the Authors Who Inscribe Them. And the spring course is called, ready for this one? I don't know if it's going to be the final title, but the working title right now is Jupernatural. You heard that right. Jupernatural. Astrology, superstition, and the paranormal in Jewish belief. Stay tuned for more information. Um, as, me- as, me- huh? as many of you know, so my tenure at Chabad in town is coming to an end, the end of July. Um, but there will be, there will certainly be more opportunities to study together. Stay tuned for information and for, uh, for all you need to know about that. But there will be certainly more opportunities to study in various contexts. Um, either way, it's always, not either way, but it's certainly been a pleasure studying this course together with you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for, for your support. And uh, I'll stay on for any questions or comments that you might have. So feel free to jump right in. I have a question. Thank you. Yes, Richard. Question about, um, is there a concept of, uh, of statute of limitations? For example, like in the sneaky agent. Uh, right. You know, things, things happen, uh, situations occur, time passes, maybe even a generation could pass. How does the faith dean and, and Jewish law view that? It's a great question. That's a great question. I am not sure about the statute of limitations with regards to, you know, these real estate purchases. A sneaky agent, you mean, where the fellow buys it and says that he bought it for himself and he's been living on the land and then the guy's like, wait a second, you're my agent, that sort of thing? Or where? That or, 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 or I'm, I'm holding this, um, I'm, I'm holding this for, for you. Um, and some, some horrible event happens, people are separated, they come back. They say, I'm, I'm here to collect my property. And what, what property? Right. A generation has passed. And said, right. Well, what are you talking about? Uh, so you're asking, like, if something was earmarked for someone and then time passes and it gets sold to someone else, can they claim you stole it from me or you took it out from under me? That sort of thing? That kind of question? That, that, that could be, yeah, that could be an example. All right, something like that. So it's a really good question. Again, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get clear on the question, but I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have a good answer. I would have to look up those, those very specific laws about statutes of limitations with regard to these types of commitments and these types of uh, you know, sales and purchases. It's a really good question. I'm, yeah, sure, and, and I'm they, sure it's written somewhere, that's for sure. Do, and, do, do, and do they treat 
transcend generationalism. Right. You know, maybe maybe the original people pass away and it, it's never really been dealt with. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. We would have to look it up. If anybody wants to volunteer to look it up, <laughs> let me know. Jump in. Otherwise, I'll see if I can find something on that and, and report back. Okay. All right. Good. Thanks. Pleasure. Questions, comments? By that um, scenario of the person walking out of the house with the lamb yes. under his coat, and the owner hasn't got a leg to stand up. Just the guy presumed, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. But I just think of like a Nazi soldier walking out of somebody's house with some silver. Like, you know, oh, this Jew gave it to me. I, I, so I, you know, I, I, um, I struggle with the same question. I, I, I want to be very clear here. I, I, when I, before I introduce that case, the second case study of the, uh, what did I call it? The sneaky, oh, the grabber nabber, right? Before I introduce that case, I said, this is going to, I forget exactly which words I used. I said, this is going to make us a little uncomfortable. It's going to rank, it's going to, you know, rankle our feathers or whatever the expression is. And I, I, I stick with that, and, and I see in the questions and in the reaction, I could see, you know, kind of body language also from, from many of you, that it's like a little bit, you know, uncomfortable to hear. And it can, can it be abused? Yes. Can faith and trust in someone be abused? Yes. When you believe in someone's propriety, can they take advantage of that? Yes. Does that mean, therefore, that you should extend an aura of suspicion on everybody, that assume first and foremost that everyone's a thief? You know, that's the other extreme. And I understand that there's a balance in the middle, but that's the other extreme is to just assume the worst. And I think Judaism starts off with the other way. Unless we have a knowledge of impropriety, unless we know that this person is not trustworthy, unless we know that they have a history of theft, unless we know that they have been convicted of whatever it is before, then likely, as we saw in a prior text, if that um, uh, assumption of, if that chesk, listen, a cheskat kashrut means it's a presumption of innocence, a presumption of, not innocence, a presumption of, of propriety, of, 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 uh, of righteousness. You can break a chazaka. If you shecht an animal, we assume it's kosher. If you check the lung and it's not, then it's not. That breaks the presumption. You presumed, if it's shechted by it, it's, it's presumed to be kosher. Not if there's a lung problem. Right, you presume that people are righteous and, and 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 holy and good, but if you know they're not, then you then you don't presume anymore because you know they're not. If a Nazi walks into a house, I, I'm going to say that that's there's no presumption anymore. You don't presume righteousness. You know who they are. There's no presumption. Presumption means all things being equal. We don't assume the worst. If if you don't have proof that the worst. So that's really what it's, and I understand that it's still like, but that means that anyone who knows this law could walk in and hide it and then say, and then I can't, if I don't have proof that they stole it, I don't have security cameras that show that they took it when I wasn't there, and how am I going to prove it even? Like, what, well, that's a crazy burden of proof on the homeowner who no longer has possession. How do they prove that it was, that it was stolen? I understand all that. And that's why I myself, you know, struggle with it. But it's an example, whether or not I can fully wrap my heart and head around it, it's still a powerful example of Judaism's starting point of presumption of propriety. We assume that people are not Ganavim, unless we know them to be a Ganav. If they're Ganav, they're Ganav. But, but yeah. who, Rabbi, who do we presume? Is that, is that all men or just Jews? That's you a know? really good question. That's a very good question. 
So my, my assumption here, again, without doing a deep dive into the text, is that we presumption for all. As long as someone doesn't have a specific history of this in this area, doesn't mean if somebody you know uh, made a personal phone call on business time, you know, on the, when they're working, that now they're assumed to be like you know uh, a thief. If some it's in a similar area, if they've done something to violate this this trust, this and, and, and breach this presumption of righteousness, then they're out. Look, I, I it's I could presume or assume that these texts were written for Jews, by Jews, in a Jewish context. That, that is the, that most likely, I mean, look, Jewish law is binding on Jews. So most likely is that, um, that these laws were written initially and, 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 you know, around that. But Judaism does believe that everyone has an ashama. Everyone has a, 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 a divine spark, a divine soul within, right? And again, to every, everyone has a different, you know, different purpose and different mission. That's fine. But the, the, the overarching idea is that everybody has a core of goodness, a core of light. If we take that, if we take that seriously, if we take that sincerely, and we apply that to human behavior and, and how we look at others, it would follow that we the starting point should be one of generosity, assuming the best, as opposed to assuming the worst, and that would be across the board. Again, unless you know that someone is can't be trusted in that area. And by the way, I think I mentioned this, but maybe I didn't. It's in my notes, at least to mention it. You know, it doesn't mean to be naive to the point where, um, you know, we allow dangerous things to happen. It doesn't mean to, like, turn a blind eye to things that are, that are no good. And I understand how that case study, I mean, I knew this case study would, was going to be the most difficult to, because uh, it was difficult for me also. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not any different than everyone here. I'm also, like, a logical, I think I'm a logical human being that feels like, how, how is this fair? I get it. Um, nonetheless, there's a, there's, a, we, there's a starting point of, of, of belief and propriety. At the same time, if we know someone has you know, acted you know, with impropriety and ha- acted less than righteous, then we have to be a little bit more suspect. It doesn't mean that we declare them, you know, that we you know, ju- judge, jury and, and execu- uh, judge, jury, and executioner, you know, but it means that we have to act with a little bit more caution. And maybe some of these ideas won't apply in all cases. Um, Okay, any other questions or comments? Questions, comments? All right. Okay, awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I certainly uh, enjoy these sessions together. Yes. So, so my question has to do with um, collective guilt and individual guilt or responsibility. Um, you, you, you know, when we look at some larger issues and some not, not so large. Um, recently in the headlines, a golfer was uh, accused or, or by a survivor uh, of the 9-11 tragedy. Um, Speak louder. Um, I'll try to get closer. I'm not sure. Can you hear me better now? Yes. Okay. So, so this... It, this this golfer was accused by a survivor of 9/11 of, um, of of doing a bad deed by participating and going over to play golf in Saudi Arabia, which um, collectively some people believe were responsible for 9/11. But the individuals themselves, the, it, the Saudis themselves, individually may not, and the, the particular in particular the people that are putting on this golf tournament may not have been involved and probably weren't involved in the 
9-11 thing. So how does this, this presumption of righteousness for the individual play into a scenario in which there may be some collective guilt, maybe a nation does something bad? That's a great question. It's a great question. I, I, I can't speak 100%, um, I can't speak unequivocally and definitively 100%, but my belief, I would have to double check, but my belief is that you do not lump the individual into the collective. It's kind of like what we said about the ritual slaughter even though we know that amongst X number of ritual slaughterers, some may not be doing everything right, but when someone comes to town and you don't know who they are and you didn't have a chance to check them and vet them and get their name and information, you have to assume the, on, the, on the individual level that they're not part of this you know, unknown, in that case, unknown minority, but they're part of the, they have a cheska kashrut, they have a presumption of, of innocence. Are we going to say that because Saudi Arabia, the government or whoever, and I, I, this is a little bit outside my, just the, I, I don't, the geopolitical and, you know, that, that, it's a little bit outside of my expertise. But if one were to posit that Saudi Arabia somehow was, uh, you know, or is, not somehow, is, you know, complicit in 9-11 funding and training, whatever it is, um, would we then say that the individual is is cancel-worthy as well. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that that collective punishment or collective, you know, whatever translates down to the individual, that that would sap them or rob them of that presumption of, uh, of righteousness, unless we know that this individual is involved in nefarious activities and, you know, in, uh, you know, terrorist, you know, terrorism. I don't know that you can do... At the same time, we can't be naive, as I said before, and I don't know exactly how naivete would apply here because I don't, I don't know enough about the considerations to jump in on this. But overall, I think the, uh, the formula here is that we, we start with the individual and then we say, okay, do we have, a pri- do we have any prior knowledge? No. So we, we, we start off with a presumption of innocence, just like we ourselves have that starting point of being good. We... We, we assign that to the other as well. We grant that to the other as well until we know otherwise. The fact that collectively this nation, this country, the government, the king, or whatever it is, did X, Y, and Z, I don't know. That's, uh, that seems to be outside of the, the individual. At least that's what I'm thinking in the moment. That doesn't mean that it's right. <laughs> My disclaimer is, I don't know. But that's, that's at least the way I'm thinking right now. It's a good question, though. An interesting question. All right. Great to see you all. Till next time. We'll see, we'll see you soon. Stay tuned, obviously, for more info as it breaks. And uh, we'll, catch you. we'll catch you soon. Take care, everybody. Lila Tov, blessings for a happy, healthy summer. Take care. See you guys. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. 
Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.